Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 394. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got some some hard news to kind of give out today about another podcast, one of my podcasts. But before that, let's tell you what's getting on today's show. First up is we have a little short bit of fiction, Starflight by Robert J. McCarter. Then we have our very own Miss Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history for July. Then also by the same writer that did Starflight, Robert J. McCarter, we have the main fiction, which is The Last Flight of the Acarus. Yes, which was originally published in Andromeda Spaceways In Flight magazine. Before that, let's just, this show, don't forget, is sponsored by Octagon Technology. Thank you so much for, you know, Clive and Diane for kind of taking care of SofaCon and everybody else that kind of helped out with SofaCon. That was fantastic. You know, a big thank you and they're looking after the show there. Yeah, we still need funds here. That would be fantastic. But like I say, there's some hard news over for Tales to Terrify. It's, it's, it's like, yes, it's like everything, you know what I mean? It's, it's got, Hard times have come, you know, financial. I can, I'm, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm sick of kind of trying to kind of just make ends meet with this shows. Do you know what I mean? And Starship shows me, me heart, me baby. Do you know what I mean? Come hella high water. But Tales of Terrify, the good thing about Tales of Terrify is it's got, you know, the, almost the same amount of download figures as Starship's over. Do you know what I mean? You're talking like 4,000. Sometimes the other one gets 5,000. Do you know, that's kind of... That's up where Starship Sova is, and, you know, what Larry started, it's just, you know, I think there was like 14 or 15 people listening to that first show, and then, you know, Stephen Kilpatrick's over there now, and just took it to a kind of staggering heights. And I mentioned on, on Tears of Terrify the other week, last week I'm doing a kind of like a month-long, you know, kind of subscription drive, monthly donations, to try and just, you know, keep it afloat. We, you know, the, the hard truth is it's got about 10 weeks and then we kind of flick the switch and knock it off. And I do want to do that. Do you know what I mean? That's the last thing on God's green earth I want to do. You know, kind of, it's Larry's legacy. That's kind of, I'm keeping it going there. And, you know, there's other, like you say, there's, it's just a great show there now. It's winning awards and everything. And out of all these people that are kind of, you know, well, seeing all these download figures, you know, there was four people or four or five people subscribed to, you know, keep the show going. And that's just, like I say, I, I'm kind of, I'm fed up with kind of, you know, it just it wears you out. I'm doing, doing this like 10 years there now. It just wears us out trying to kind of scrabble the money together, kind of dipping into the family pot. 
So, you know, I've had to kind of make a hard decision. If it doesn't make any money within them next days, it's going to get, you know, them next weeks, it, it'll get, you know, that, that switch will get flicked. And that's just, you know, a kind of horrible, horrible thought. So, yeah, I know we're starships over here and we're science fiction, but if you believe in what I do and you kind of want to help, you know, keep Tales to Terrify going, you know, or you listen to Tales to Terrify, trust us, it is kind of desperate times over there. If you want to kind of help out, you know, monthly donations is just, it just keeps it going, you know, week after week after week. If they're monthly donations, 250 or fiver, yeah, there's even tenners and a 20 quid one. Do you know what I mean? But that's what will help. Do you know what I mean? It'll help to keep it going. Surely out there, there's people that can listen to Tales to Terrify that thought, oh, right, right, they're the other one, donations. I didn't realize. Do you know what I mean? Because Stephen, I don't think Stephen kind of, you know, is, is always kind of, Happy to kind of ask, you know, it's kind of a bit uncomfortable. So it was, it was left to me to kind of. So like, I put some recordings on Tales to Terrify, and they're going to be over the next few weeks just to try and drum up some support. So listen, honestly, if you can, if you believe in what we do, yeah, you know what I mean. If you kind of want to help us out and do want to see Tales to Terrify just kind of go the way Crime City Central and Protecting Project Pub did. We need your help. We need your support. And it would be, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, it would be truly amazing if you could do that. Monthly donations are just the one. Do you know what I mean? After all these times, you know, trying to kind of do this, do that, do that, I realise, like, it's monthly donations that just kind of cover your arse. Do you know what I mean? Putting it mildly, kind of stop it kind of bouncing off the runway. So help out. That would be fantastic. So first up is Starflight by Robert J. McCarter. I'll give you a little heads up about Robert. Robert J. McCarter lives in the mountains of Arizona with his beautiful wife and ridiculous adorable dog, pounding away on the keyboard producing software to make a living and stories to fill his soul and hopefully yours. He has written several ghost-oriented novels, Shuffled Out. He is currently working on a series, Lightning Girl, Fun puppy books that follow our heroes as they adjust to their new powers, fall in love, and try to save the world. His short stories have appeared in Andromeda Spaceways, In Flight Magazine, Everyday Fiction, New Sun Rising, Stories for Japan and others. And you can find out more about Robert and his work over at robertjmcarter.com. These, both these stories are recorded and voiced and narrated by the amazing Catherine Inskip. Just fantastic. Catherine wears galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She is addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. And if you remember, odd times as well, Catherine will come on and give her like a little bit of kind of a sciencey space, you know, talk about kind of the, the real world space out there, what's going on in kind of in our universe. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present Death by Starlight by Robert J. McCarter The void of space, dark, empty, lit only by the pinpricks of starlight as I floated in the vast emptiness, alone. Oxygen running out, blaring blood red on my heads-up display. Time to die. The animal in us can't conceive of death, of a world without us. As I waited to die, I realised that my death did actually mean my world's death. Not the objective world we all share, but my subjective world. 
the one filtered through my eyes and my experiences, would die with me. My world could not exist without me. I felt ready for it. I had wanted to live on the frontier, and now it was time to die on the frontier. What else could happen? My ship destroyed. My comrades dead. My comm damaged. I couldn't even call for help. Alone in the cold, vast silence of space. As the oxygen levels decreased, as my end grew near, the stars changed. They went from tiny white pinpricks to these rainbow smears of colour, sparkling and lovely. I understand the biology. As my O2 levels plummeted, my brain started dying. And that dying was beautiful. I grinned like a drunk and giggled, the sound echoing in my spacesuit's helmet. I licked my lips, my tongue fat and slug-like, my mouth tasting of metal. I reached out with my mind to those rainbow stars, the colour spilling forth as if someone held a prism in front of each of them. So beautiful. The most beautiful thing I had ever seen. The last thing I would ever see. I beseeched them to take me. To make me one of them. I wanted to join them and be alone in the vastness of space, lit by an inner light. Eventually, the rainbow started to fade, and all became darkness. Sadness. And finally, a spike of fear reached my dying brain. Rescue. Consciousness came back with a jolt. I was on a ship, surrounded by smiling people. They had found me. The lights were so bright they stabbed like tiny knives into my brain. I closed my eyes. I didn't speak. I grieved. I wanted death by starlight. I wanted the stars to take me. I didn't want to be back in the same life. I wanted to be among the stars and the starlight. I wanted to be the starlight. I didn't speak for a week. They subjected me to tests and doctors and counselling. But what was there to say? The world didn't seem right until... I saw it as a doctor flashed my eyes with his little penlight for the zillionth time. A rainbow smear of light. I blinked and laughed like a giddy schoolgirl. I got off of the examination table and looked at the lights in the ceiling. If I turned my head the right way, there it was, that prismatic explosion of colour. Starlight. After that, everything changed. Each breath became a joy. The most mundane activity, eating, making my bunk, doing a routine systems check, became an adventure. Everything haloed in that rainbow light, if I just looked for it. The doctors say it's a result of my oxygen deprivation. But I know better.
the stars. They took me. This world is not the world I left. I am not the person I was. I died. I was reborn. It is all starlight. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Robert. Robert, thank you so much. What a, This is great to have two stories by one author. Thank you so much. And Catherine, marvellous. Next is our very own, looking back at genre history with our Amy H. Sturgis, man. Hey, hey. It's the old Jory lingo there. And don't forget as well, Ames is, you know, our miss, Ames, the teacher there, is teaching as well. Star Wars, the end of the... Kind of fall, which is just, imagine that, man. Imagine that. Ims! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I'd like to offer a tribute to an actor who recently passed. You've probably read and heard and seen multiple tributes to Sir Christopher Lee, who was born on the 27th of May, 1922, and at the age of 93, died on June 7, 2015. The outpouring of tributes and salutes and homages and praises have been remarkable, and there's no way I can recount all of the details that you're probably already familiar with anyway, such as the fact that Christopher Lee was a war hero during the Second World War and even helped track down Nazi war criminals, and how he was heavy metal before heavy metal was cool. There is no way in the space of my segment today that I can cover even the highlights of a career spanning nearly 70 years, or even mention all of the science fiction-related works that Christopher Lee was involved with, what I'd like to do instead is just offer a more personal word. As you know, I look at genre history, and there are particular areas that are of intense interest to me. And as I was thinking about the life and career of Christopher Lee, I realized that in every direction I look, in my own areas of interest and study and scholarship and teaching, Christopher Lee has left an indelible mark. For example, I study the Gothic, and I've talked in this segment in the past about how the Gothic is a parent of science fiction. SF evolved from the Gothic. And when I look at the Gothic, I think, of course, of Christopher Lee, particularly his long association from the 1950s to 1970s with Hammer Horror, in particular, his unforgettable portrayals of Dracula. If you haven't seen Mark Gatiss's wonderful A History of Horror three-part series, I highly recommend checking it out. I do believe it is online now. And it does a wonderful job of putting Christopher Lee's contributions front and center, his and those of his dear friend Peter Cushing. And when I think of the Gothic, I also think of the film that Christopher Lee thought was his best film, and I won't necessarily disagree with that. The Wicker Man from 1973 is a fantastic Gothic mystery horror musical in which a devoutly Christian 
police sergeant, portrayed by Edward Woodward, goes to the isolated island of Summer Isle in order to track down, hopefully, a missing girl. And he finds that the inhabitants of the island practice a form of Celtic paganism, a very trippy form. And those inhabitants are led by Christopher Lee, who turns in a remarkable performance. And of course, related to the Gothic, Christopher Lee has also had many roles in Tim Burton's works. When I consider my study of Sherlock Holmes, whom I consider to be science fictional, in some cases and in others, straight up science fiction, something else I've talked about in this segments. Well, there's Christopher Lee again. He was Sir Henry Baskerville in what I think is the very best adaptation of The Hound of the Baskervilles, 1959. He was Sir Henry opposite, again, his dear friend Peter Cushing, who portrayed Sherlock Holmes. I should add that Cushing's portrayal is one of the finest portrayals of Holmes in film. Lee was also Sherlock Holmes himself in multiple films, in Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace in 1962, opposite Thorley Walters as Watson, and in later years, he reprised the role in Sherlock Holmes and the Leading Lady in 1991, Incident at Victoria Falls in 92, both opposite Patrick McNee as Watson. And I should point out that Patrick McNee we also lost in June of 2015, also at the age of 93. Furthermore, Christopher Lee was an integral part of one of the most important works in Holmesian cinema. He brought his elegant intellectual presence to the role of Mycroft Holmes in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes in 1970, which should be considered must-see viewing. That Billy Wilder film, along with the original stories by Arthur Conan Doyle, formed the major inspirations for the BBC's Sherlock. I also love and write about and study and teach the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And when it comes to Tolkien, Christopher Lee was the real deal. He met Tolkien, and every year he treated himself to a rereading of The Lord of the Rings. Of course, he portrayed Saruman in Peter Jackson's two Middle-earth trilogies, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He also did a rather amazing job of narrating Tolkien's Children of Hurin. But by far my favorite contribution to the Tolkien universe made by Christopher Lee was his work with the Danish group The Tolkien Ensemble. This remarkable musical group adapted all of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings verses to music, and Christopher Lee sang with and narrated for those songs. I highly recommend treating yourself to the albums At Dawn in Rivendell from 2002 and Leaving Rivendell in 2005, or the compilation Complete Songs and Poems from 2006 with the Tolkien Ensemble, joined by Christopher Lee. So, as you can see, no matter which direction I look, whether it's the Gothic or Sherlock Holmes or the writings of Tolkien, well, there's Christopher Lee. I'd like to bring this back around and end on a science fictional note. I am unabashedly a lifelong Star Wars fan, 
And as Tony mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to be teaching a new course, The Force of Star Wars, examining the epic in the fall. And as I look forward to the fall, well, there again is Christopher Lee. Again, there is the connection between the work of Christopher Lee and that of his close friend Peter Cushing, in that Peter Cushing was Grand Moff Tarkin in the original Star Wars A New Hope in 1977. And many years later, Christopher Lee joined him in that universe in the key role of Count Dooku, also known as Lord Tyrannus or Darth Tyrannus. This character holds a major place in the Star Wars canon, providing a link in the chain of Jedi Masters and Apprentices, supplying the Apprentice to Yoda and the Master to Liam Neeson's Qui-Gon Jinn, then falling to the dark side of the Force, becoming Darth Sidious's second Apprentice, the founder of the Confederacy of Independent Systems, and the instigator of the Clone Wars. Lee's gravity the seriousness of his presence really sold that. He appeared in Attack of the Clones in 2002 and Revenge of the Sith in 2005 and loaned his voice to the Clone Wars film in 2008. I've found it very moving to read the words of great creators who not only worked with Lee but were inspired by him, such as directors Tim Burton and Martin Scorsese. So I thought I would end this by sharing with you part of the official statement made by Peter Jackson, just in case you missed it. And if you didn't, well, I think it's worth revisiting. Quote, Christopher spoke seven languages. He was in every sense a man of the world, well-versed in art, politics, literature, history, and science. He was a scholar, a singer, an extraordinary raconteur, and, of course, a marvelous actor. One of my favorite things to do whenever I came to London would be to visit with Christopher and Gita, that's Christopher Lee's wife of 54 years, where he would regale me for hours with stories about his extraordinary life. I loved to listen to them, and he loved to tell them. They were made all the more compelling because they were true. Stories from his time with the SAS, through the Second World War, to the Hammer Horror years, and later, his work with Tim Burton, of which he was enormously proud. I was lucky enough to work with Chris on five films, all told, and it never ceased to be a thrill to see him on set. I remember him saying on my 40th birthday, he was 80 at the time, You're half the man I am. Being half the man Christopher Lee is, is more than I could ever hope for. He was a true gentleman in an era that no longer values gentlemen. I grew up loving Christopher Lee movies. For most of my life, I was enthralled by the great iconic roles he not only created, but continued to own decades later. But somewhere along the way, Christopher Lee suddenly and magically dissolved away, and he became my friend Chris, and I loved Chris even more. There will never be another Christopher Lee. He has a unique place in the history of cinema, and in the hearts of millions of fans around the world. End quote. Rest in peace, Christopher Lee. I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Oh, big hugs. Big hugs, girl. Thank you so much. 
So the main fiction, yes, the main fiction is the last flight of the actress by you know Robert J. McCarter, who we've played the little short story earlier today, Starflight. Like I say, this was originally published in Andromeda Spaceways in Flight magazine, and that little Starflight just it was published in everyday fiction just to kind of keep everything nice and sweet. It is, as I say, recorded by, narrated by Catherine Inskip. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Last Flight of the Acarus by Robert J. McCarter I die every night. Not literally, of course, but also not some metaphorical loss of consciousness dying to the day shit either. I literally feel like I am dying every single night. Sometimes, most of the time, I feel like I can't breathe. I am, of course, breathing, but my body freaks out like it is not. And when it is not that, I feel this deep, oppressive heaviness, and I can't move. I can't do anything. In both cases, I am trapped, knowing that the end is near. And it is not like I am fully awake and can rationalise myself out of this. I am in the twilight state, between consciousness and unconsciousness, neither fully awake nor fully asleep. The normal rules don't apply. I am stuck, forced to feel whatever biochemical dance that is going on in my body, and whatever that dance is, it feels like death. It is probably related to the accident. I mean, how couldn't it be? Floating out there in the darkness of the void, with only the pinprick lights of the stars to illuminate me, fighting for my life, my oxygen running out. I haven't told a soul. I don't want to be pulled from active duty and medicated. This is the only record of what I am going through. It is my hope that writing this down, getting it out, expressing it, will help to resolve the situation. I hope it does. I honestly don't know how much longer I can stand the night terrors. Acarus, this is command. Status update, over. Command, I said. This is the Acarus. Wells here. Hicks is on an untethered EVA working on the damage. Doesn't sound good. Is the rescue team away yet? Over. There was a five-second delay. We were a long ways out. Roger that, Wells. Your ride should be there in about ten hours. Over. Beers are on me when we get back. Over and out. I switched to the local comm and said, Yo, Cap, how's it going out there? Over. There was a brief laugh, followed by, Way to follow orders, Wells. Over. Absolutely, Cap. You made it very clear I was not to call you Julia or use excessively casual language on the comm. Everything being recorded on the black box and you being all worried about posterity and the like. Over. The excessively casual language still needs work, Lieutenant Wells. And you know full well my rank is Lieutenant Commander. Over. Sorry, Capo. Sorry to disregard your most appropriate order. But this bucket of bolts is yours, and that makes you El Capitan. But I will do my level best to straighten up and fly right. Over. She laughed again, a deep, throaty laugh, which is why, of course, I carried on that way. If you can make them laugh, the rest is easy. 
That damn rock ripped right through the outer hull and got to our control wiring. I am attempting to bypass, so we can at least head ourselves in the right direction. Over. The Acarus, being a space-only vessel, had a plain utilitarian design that appealed to me. It was modular, built out of standard parts. It had its command personnel module sandwiched in between two big cargo cubes. On the aft end was the propulsion module, where Julia was working. Don't know if that is needed, Capo. Command says our taxi is ten hours out. Over. Well, I am out here. The least I can do is... The Acarus lurched, shuddered and spun laterally. Unprepared for it, I was thrown from my chair, my head connecting with the co-pilot's chair, and then the deck. I saw stars, and then nothing. I blame it on the pulse. I really do. Shortly before I was born, the moon finally got colonised. It took us nearly a century from initially walking on the moon to living on the moon, but at least it happened. As I grew up, I was rapt watching the news reports, the stupid reality shows from the embedded media, and the wonder of it all. I even managed to get my folks to help me buy a telescope so I could see the buildings going up near the Shackleton Crater for myself. When I headed off to high school, mankind headed off to Mars. My entire youth, it seems, was spent watching humanity leave the cradle of Earth. And, as if that wasn't bad enough, the whole thing spawned a new pulp era in science fiction. So I would get all I could of the real thing, and then voraciously consume the pulps on my reader. Some of the old characters came back. Buck Rogers, John Carter of Mars, along with some brand new ones, Captain Brandon Steele, Helen Tremor and the like. Space and adventure totally consumed me. I grew out of it briefly when adolescence hit. I was obsessed with another type of adventure and conquest. But as a young man fresh out of college with an engineering degree, the move towards the asteroid belt swept me up. Once again, I was riveted by it. The need for the rare earth elements that are critical to our high-tech lifestyle, neodymium, cerium, lutetium and the like, drove it. That and mankind had finally gotten hooked on space life. The moon, with its relative closeness and certainty, suddenly seemed blasé. Mars was tantalising, terraforming and all, but it seemed, somehow, too easy. I wanted to go further. I wanted to be a belter. I was out for almost two hours. I woke up on the deck of the Acarus's bridge, a blossoming welt on my head, feeling the microgravity from the spin gently pressing me against the starboard side of the bridge. I got myself into the pilot's seat and triggered the comm. Julia? Julia! Come in, Julia! There was no reply. The view screens didn't show much, just the spinning of the stars. The Acarus was doing about fifteen rotations a minute around her vertical axis. I activated short-range radar and found her. She was about three hundred clicks away, headed towards a grouping of asteroids. The Acarus was a cargo runner and had been on its usual supply run, weaving through the belt and making drops at some of the outposts. We load up at Ceres Station, which orbits the dwarf planet Ceres, the biggest thing in the belt. Our cargo is a combination of ice, 
mined from Ceres, and other supplies sent from Earth, the Moon, Mars, or produced on other asteroids. Stopping is not practical, so we make ballistic drops to the other bases as we pass them. Everything has orbits that closely match Ceres and are not more than two days' burn away. The belt is a big, chaotic place. It sits between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It is not practical to spread too far. There is, though, the occasional rumour of expanding to Pallas, the second biggest rock in the belt, and its family of asteroids. We were about halfway out when the rock holed us. We had just made a drop to a termite crew, the crazy, and I mean crazy, folks that show up first on an asteroid and burrow out the base, when the rock hit. Some damn mini wannabe comet going fast enough to hole us. Julia, do you read? Captain Hicks, come in. Over. I went to work on the computer, reconstructing what happened. We not only had lateral spin, but our trajectory had changed. Not a lot in the scale of the asteroid belt, but it was a lot on the human scale. When Julia was trying to reroute the wiring, she must have triggered our attitude thrusters as well as our main engines, all on the starboard side. Further investigation revealed a small explosion occurring near where Julia was. Looking at the video logs, I saw a flash of some metal plating and other debris as her body spun away from the Acarus. I ran this through a quick simulation. I knew her position and trajectory. I knew the ship's trajectory before and after. I knew what burned and for how long. I set it up, let the computer crunch the numbers, and came up with what kind of force she was hit with. No wonder she wasn't replying. Julia, do you read? Julia, damn it, wake up! She was long past the point of no return on her suit now. Tony had limited propulsion. It wasn't a full EVA, it was a lighter weight suit. I then pulled up the specs on her spacesuit and simulated the damage to the most likely points of contact. That, at least, was not horrible news. The odds were decent, about 40%, that the suit had survived the blow. Oxygen would be the problem. If she had survived, she only had about two hours on her tanks. Our ride would be here in about eight hours. That would do her no good. No good at all. I briefly considered calling this into command. I know what they would say. I know what protocol was. Stay put. So I didn't give them the chance to say no and started working on a rescue plan. The night terrors came again last night, but it was different this time. I wasn't in that twilight terror state. I was fully in a dream. I dreamed I was bones, dark grey bones. I wasn't dying, I was dead. I could clearly see my legs and my feet. The skinniness of the toe bones was striking. I was just looking at them, staring at them, knowing they were mine, when this force grabbed me from behind and moved me. I watched as my legs and feet flopped around. I was terrified. I didn't know what had grabbed me, but I knew that it was dark, and that the force it exerted was irresistible. Actually, the force seemed to be the darkness itself. I woke up panting and sweating. I have no idea if this is progress, but it is, at least, a change. I was in the upper airlock, which was small, 
and with the big EVA rig I had on, I barely fit. The Levar long-range EVA rig was attached to the back of my spacesuit. It had oxygen, fuel, thrusters, improved communication, and a big brain. It was so big I had to take it into the airlock and put it on there. It took me a while. It is something you normally have help with. Mating the suit to the Levar has to be perfect. I ended up sticking a camera to the ceiling of the airlock and putting the output on the screen there so I could watch while I docked with it. Making it even more unwieldy, I had attached a T-valve and an extension hose to the oxygen feed so I could change out oxygen, which I would need to do. I had two of the big blue O2 tanks strapped securely to my legs and one to the levar. My simulation showed that both of us surviving required this. It took everything I had not to freak out. It was all taking too long. Every minute put her farther away, made her tanks closer to empty. From waking up to getting out into space took about 90 minutes. I hadn't told command yet. I didn't want to risk them ordering me to stay put, and then me going against orders. I wanted to survive, and keep my commission. As the airlock cycled, I recorded a message to command. Command, this is Lieutenant Rajas Wells, Acting Commander of the Acarus. Please listen to this entire transmission and view the accompanying simulation before contacting me. Lieutenant Commander Hicks has been injured and I am attempting a rescue. While she made repairs to the Acarus, the main starboard thruster and starboard attitude control fired at full capacity for 3.2 seconds. There was a small explosion that sent Hicks moving one way and the thrusters sent the Acarus moving another. Her vector is taking her towards a cluster of asteroids. I have been unable to raise her on the comm, and her suit is not responsive to communications either. It is clear the suit has been damaged, but simulations show that she has a 40% chance of survival. That is enough for me. I am taking the lever and programming it to take me to her. By the time you could get a message to me, I will be past the point of no return. I have enough fuel to reach her, and arrest her motion, and keep her from getting tangled in the asteroids but not enough to return to the Acarus. Make sure that taxi you are sending for us is not late. Over and out. Becoming a belter was a hell of a lot harder than I imagined it to be, and believe me, I didn't think it would be easy. The International Space Consortium, ISC, doesn't fool around. Stage 1 training happened on Earth, and was psychologically brutal. It was interesting. When I applied and got my first interview, it wasn't with some military guy or a former astronaut, it was with a psychologist. They wanted to find out if I had the right psychological makeup to be out there on the frontier. It makes sense, but I was surprised. I made it through that interview, and the subsequent psychological testing. Then came the isolation training. Sounds kinda okay, right? Well, try thirty days in solitary confinement on for size. The box they put me in was clean and warm. They fed me every day, but I didn't see a soul, hear a voice or see the sky for 30 days. I only had 8 hours of electricity a day, so 16 hours a day it was pitch black. Nothing to read, nothing to do. I spend my waking hours going toe-to-toe with my fears and doubts, becoming well acquainted with the ugly, unexplored crannies of my psyche doing anything at all to keep it all in. And there was a big red button in the box. One touch, 
and you're out of the box and out of the programme. I hated that button. You don't do thirty days like that and not want to touch it. It became a figure in my dreams. It would whisper to me, taunt me and tease me until in my dreams I gave it what it wanted. I would wake up terrified that I had actually touched the button and I was out. I made it through, barely. From there, stage one training transitioned immediately into a military-style boot camp. Yup, after thirty days alone, you have some drill sergeant screaming orders at you. The drill sergeant wasn't the only shock. Having to interact with people after so much time alone almost did me in. If you survived that, which I did, barely, you get to do a kind of hardcore space camp. Basic equipment training, spacesuits in the pool, hygiene simulations, everyone goes until they pass out, and the like. I met Julia Hicks in Stage 2 ISC training on the moon. We were all so happy to be there, to have escaped the Earth gravity well, to be relatively assured of a career in space, and we were all so relieved to be done with Stage 1 training. It was my first evening there at mess, when I bumped into this large woman. She was about my height, six foot, had short blonde hair, crooked teeth and piercing grey eyes. And it was her eyes that caught my attention. I must have been staring because she said, Like what you see, boy? The boy caught me off guard. We both looked like we were in our mid-twenties. Ah, sorry, I said, my eyes leaving hers and travelling down her body. Now you really like what you see she said with a laugh, slapping me on the back. I sputtered another sorry out and she laughed harder. Tell you what, buy me dinner and you can stare all you like. Not that I could buy her a dinner here. But we did eat together and got to know each other. She was a corn-fed Nebraska girl looking for the next great adventure. Her father had been an avid mountain climber and she figured the only way to climb mountains he hadn't was to leave the planet. Did I mention that she was competitive? We talked about isolation training. So how many days did you last? She asked. Huh? I lasted all thirty. You don't do thirty, you don't make it here. She laughed then. Oh, you are gullible, aren't you? Shit, boy, I made it twenty-one days and I'm a rock star. They just tell you that thirty-day shit to motivate you. I was stunned into silence. But that is impressive, boy, I am impressed. She then stood up and said in a loud voice, Attention everyone, attention! Mr Wells here made it thirty days in the box. Thirty fucking days! Any of you wimps do that? There was whispering but no answers. Can any of you shits beat twenty-one? Again whispering, but no answers. She sat down, looked me straight in the eyes and said, You and me, Wells, we gotta stick together. I don't think the rest of these pussies got what it takes. I shook my head and smiled. I just couldn't stop looking at those grey eyes of hers. The airlock opened, exposing me to the void. Not much to see, but a smattering of stars. Mars was currently on the other side of its orbit, and the sun was blocked by the ship, so it really was the void. I gently pushed off and eased my way up and out of the airlock. I managed to do it without snagging the lever which I had been worried about. The upper lock was smaller than the port and starboard. This airlock was in the smaller crew module, in between the two large cargo modules. 
so when I left, I had the walls of the cargo cubes on either side. I slowly made my way up, pushing myself back from the wall of the cargo module, until I was clear. I looked below me and saw the Acarus. It was still as the stars rotated around us. I triggered the attitude jets on my suit and arrested my motion. The stars became motionless and the Acarus started spinning. Looking at her simple but ungraceful lines, I found myself reticent to leave her. She wasn't much, but she was home. She was my dream come true. She was our home, Hicks and me. Hicks, come in. Hicks, this is Wells, come in. Over. I tried once more. I didn't hear back, but then again, I didn't expect to. The lever had found Hicks and showed her position on the heads-up display. It also showed her projected oxygen capacity. She had less than 45 minutes left. I was plotting a course with a 1G burn when a red warning lit up on my display. Oxygen, 10%. I cussed then, using every swear word I knew. Stupid, I had been so stupid. I had been in such a hurry I had skipped the normal checklists. I hadn't checked the tank. Stupid. That gave me 30 minutes on my tank. I could have just changed tanks, but then we wouldn't have enough to wait for rescue. I added a new constraint into the burn programme. It had to take 20 minutes or less. The new details popped up and I groaned. It was going to take a 30-second burn at 3 Gs to get me there in time. I carefully positioned the lever so I was pointed straight at her, started doing the shallow breathing I had been trained to, and said, Execute. The lever slammed into my back, taking my breath away. I had been in space long enough so that my body had changed. I knew I could never set foot on Earth again, and despite the training and the time and simulated gravity, Mars was the most gravity I'd be able to handle long term. Three Gs was a lot for me now. It was at the edge of what I could take. I kept up the shallow breathing, hoping I wouldn't black out. Something could go wrong. The heads-up showed the acceleration. One G, two Gs. My head went light, and my vision constricted. Coming, Julia. I'm coming. Three Gs. Darkness. Julia and I were... How best to describe it? We were friends. And partners. But that is really not enough. Perhaps comrades says it best. We were comrades. Since the day we met, we partnered up as often as we could. The ISC encourages this kind of thing. You have to be able to trust your shipmates completely. What they care about is twofold, performance first and foremost, and psychological stability. As a team, we were there on both counts. Team Hells, Hicks and Wells. We even had patches made special and wore them on our jumpsuits. After training, our first assignment was ice shuttle duty. We would fly one of the shuttles down to the ice mines on series, load up and fly it back up to the station, three times a day, six days a week. It was Boring as hell. The ship could practically fly itself, but still, two highly trained crew members were required, just in case. And there were some things for us to do. Communications, monitoring, inspections and the like. But it wasn't exciting. Exciting came when we did our required weekly manual flight. Being the pilot, I lived for it. Hicks said she did too, but I sometimes doubted it. The manual flight time was all about redundancy. Humans were the last fail-safe on these things. 
If the computers fried, someone had to be able to get the ship to where it was going. That was our life, hauling ice cubes, bored as shit, five days a week, with one exciting flight one day a week. But hey, we were on the frontier. That is all that mattered. I came too, slowly. The coloured lines of the heads-up convincing me, briefly, that I was high. Memory soon came back and I forced myself to focus my eyes. Oxygen 1% flashed in the centre of the heads-up display. I had about three minutes left. What the hell happened? How long was I out? I still should have O2. Did I forget to check it before going EVA? Shit, I had. I had more oxygen tanks, didn't I? I brought them, right? My mind was sluggish from the oxygen deprivation and I had trouble remembering. I looked around and was stunned by the blackness. There were the pinpricks of distant stars, but nothing larger in sight. I sucked some air in and tried to calm my suddenly pounding heart. I had spacewalked more times than I could count, but always near something, near the Ceres station, near the Acarus or the Mather shuttle. But now I was in the middle of space, alone. Two minutes of oxygen left. As I swung my head around, the flash of a blue oxygen tank caught my eye. I focused my attention and remembered that indeed I had two large tanks strapped to my legs, a third strapped to the lever, and a way to change tanks. I started working on one of the tanks. It was duct taped to my leg. How the hell was I going to deal with that? I checked my tool pouch and pulled out a knife. I had to shake my head. A knife. I needed to wield a knife in an oxdep state wearing a pressurised suit. Was I dumb or what? One minute of oxygen left. I carefully cut the tank free and stowed the knife. I swung my right arm back and around, like a diver trying to get their regulator back. Oxygen depleted. I didn't panic. I had a minute or two left. I kept breathing as normally as possible, doing my best to tolerate the rapidly depleting oxygen levels. I took the valve on the extension tube I had attached, brought it around, and hooked up the tank. I floated in the void, calm for a moment, breathing deep as my oxygen was restored, until I remembered why the hell I was out there. Julia. It didn't take long to find Julia. She was about 100 metres behind me. Dead. I couldn't see much but the cracked faceplate and the blood that had crystallised on it. I didn't want to see more. That was more than enough. She was dead. I pulled a tether from the levar and hooked it to her suit. I manoeuvred the levar around so I couldn't see her. I stared into the void and waited. Waited for rescue. Well, this is command, we have a problem. The Jantor, which was deployed to rescue the Acarus, has had an engine malfunction. They were on a fast burn to your vicinity when the malfunction occurred. They are having trouble turning them off, and they can't manoeuvre for deceleration. The problem has not been fixed yet. We don't have an ETA. Arrival is at least another 15 hours off. We got your transmission regarding Hicks. Good luck, we are all hoping you found her alive and have enough O2. Over and out. Command, this is Wells. Hicks is dead. I repeat, Hicks is dead. 
It appears that when the Acris's engine fired and the explosion occurred, she took the blow to her faceplate, cracking it. I have tethered her body to the lever and will be using the rest of my fuel to arrest our motion so you can find our bodies. I have about 14 hours of O2 left, not enough for the Jantor to reach us. It, it has been a pleasure. Wells out. I focused on the task at hand, arresting our Delta V and preventing us from falling into the cluster of asteroids. I still couldn't see them, but the radar on the lever showed them out there. It was doubtful they would go after our bodies if we got tangled up in them. Really, I don't know why I found that important. I still wanted rescue, even if we were both dead. I wanted our families to receive our cremated remains. I had to get Hicks's corpse in front of me. If she was behind, the jet would just burn through the tether, and I would leave her there. I slowly reeled her in until she was right in front of me, that cracked and reddish faceplate dominating my field of view. I gently turned her around and pushed her down a bit, so the back of her head was at chest level, and tied her to the lever. After moving my tank around and securing it to the front of the lever, I programmed in a burn, a gentle one this time, and headed us toward the Acarus. Julia and I spent eighteen months doing the ice cube run. It drove me a bit batty, up and down, up and down, but she kept me centred, on the task. Just waited out, Wells. There is something better coming our way, she said one day when I was grousing about it. Besides, aren't you living your motherfucking dream right now? She added her throaty laugh to punctuate the statement. Yes, sir, living my motherfucking dream, sir, I replied, saluting her in a highly theatrical way. And she was like that, always optimistic, always focused, always clear on what she wanted. So we waited it out, up and down, up and down. The frontier was full of boredom. It was boredom punctuated by brief flashes of overwhelming excitement. And if you were a pro, and we were, you approached the flashes of excitement the same way you did the boredom, one foot in front of the other, getting it done, up and down, up and down. The ice shuttles were utilitarian in construction, hulking cargo cubes to store the ice, with a bridge sticking out awkwardly on the front, the main thrusters on the bottom, smaller thrusters on the back, and a few attitude controls. Ceres didn't have much of an atmosphere, and only 3% of the gravity of Earth, so such a design made sense. On our last quarter during the runs, we had a major systems failure. MSF, which by the grunts, us, was called Mothership Fucker. Our main thrusters, the ones that make us go up and down, went out. We were 60 seconds away, and about 1,500 metres above the mining colony. We felt it first. The familiar rumbling and pressure on our asses went away. We floated briefly, and then we were falling. I've got red on the main thrusters, I said. Calm, even. Roger, Hicks said, switching to manual. Main's still not responding. We are falling and we'll hit the colony square. Roger that, Wells. Make sure that doesn't happen. I hit the back thrusters full, hoping that would carry us past the colony and crush us down onto the ice. Bulldog Mining Station, Julia said into the comm. This is the Ice Shuttle Wellington. Our main thrusters have failed. We are falling towards you. 
We are attempting to get out of the way, but outcome not clear. Prepare for impact. I repeat, prepare for impact. The thrusters were edging us away, but our fall was accelerating, and it wasn't going to be enough. The sim showed us crashing into the southern edge of the colony. That the best you got? Hicks asked, looking at the same display I was. I wasn't sure what to do, so I closed my eyes and took two deep breaths. When I opened them, I had a plan. I used the attitude thrusters to tilt the Wellington up and away from the colony. The sim showed us clearing the colony, but put our chances at survival at one in six. Hicks nodded and said, I can live with that. Good job, Wells. I smiled and checked the straps holding me in. It was going to be a rough landing. The levar thrusted, slowly arresting our motion. I looked at my heads up and was glad to see that it was going to be enough to arrest our motion and put us creeping back towards the Acarus. Hicks was dead, and I was going to die out here. But at least we were together. That the best you got? I heard. What? I asked. I changed the heads up to com and saw no record of recent communication. You heard me, Lieutenant, that the best you got? Oh shit, I thought, hallucinating. Not good. I checked the oxygen levels and vitals. Everything was in the green. I had to be imagining it. That was bad. Damn it, Wells, stop fucking around. I stopped fighting it. What the hell, I was going to die anyway. Why not have a conversation with a dead person? I need a moment, sir. I closed my eyes and took two deep breaths, letting go for a moment of the worry and fear and grief. Oxygen. I needed more oxygen soon. There was plenty of oxygen on the Acarus. If I could... The plan became clear as day. I smiled and said, Thanks, Hicks. I didn't hear her voice any more. But I felt her smile. Come on, this is Wells. Come in. Over. After the delay for the signal to travel to command and back to me, I heard, This is command. What's on your mind, Wells? I need override code sent to the Acarus. There are some things in cargo that may save my skinny ass. Over. In cargo? I don't understand. Over. Just do it, okay? I don't have much time. Over. Code sent. Rescue is estimated to be 14 hours out. Good luck, Wells. Over and out. The cargo areas of the Acarus are tended by robots. We don't go in unless there is a big problem or a serious repair needed. I was communicating with those bots now. Well, actually I was communicating with the ship, which was tasking the bots as needed to accomplish what I wanted. I checked the manifest. There was another levar in there. That would do. I ordered for it to be uncrated, moved to the main airlock and prepped for duty. There was oxygen in the hold, plenty of it in tanks ready to go. I ordered those tanks to be uncrated and attached to the lever. It took time. These were unusual tasks, so I monitored carefully, watching the video feed on my heads up and intervening when necessary. The cargo bots were more the brawny, move-big-things-around type, and this was delicate work. I ended up bringing in the repair bots, which had the dexterity needed to activate the levar and strap the oxygen to it. They got it done. The levar, with oxygen tanks, was moved into the airlock and exposed to space. I linked the two levars together, so I could control both. I sent the second levar blazing out of the airlock. It was risky, but I couldn't let it get fouled up with rotating acarus. Fortunately, it worked, 
With only the one Levi left on the Acherus, it was my only chance. Next, I needed to rendezvous with the other Levi. I programmed the parameters of the next stage in order of importance. Rendezvous in less than five hours? How long a tank would last me? Keep G-forces survivable for me? Do so using the minimal amount of fuel. The two Levars talked to each other, optimising the parameters, some of which were at odds with each other. I reviewed the simulation. Compared to the last one, it was going to be a cakewalk, a nice, slow, 1G burn for my lever, and a much harder burn for the second lever. I unstrapped another oxygen tank from my lever, hyperventilated briefly, unhooked the old tank and put on the new tank. It took less than a minute. I fumbled a bit because of the big spacesuit gloves, and I freaked a little. One slip, and that would be it. Now that I had a chance to live, I was desperate for it, but I had two other concerns. Water and CO2. I would run out of water, but I could survive a little dehydration. My real concern, provided I got the O2, was the carbon dioxide scrubbers. They weren't made for this kind of extended use. There was nothing I could do about that, so I took a deep breath and let it go. The new oxygen reading gave me four hours and 48 minutes. I reviewed everything one more time and then executed the programme. Both Levars started their burns. I wasn't conscious long. I made a move on Hicks. Once. It was at the beginning of our second year in the belt, after three months on the Wellington. Her response was not what I expected. When you live in such a small community, like the Belters did, sex was not prudish or hidden. It was what it was. We were in the officers' lounge, toasting our success. We had just gotten word that our provisional time with the Wellington was over, and she was ours. I may be hauling ice cubes, I began, but at least I'm a belter, she finished. It was a common call and response around here. You know, like, I may be cleaning toilets, but at least I'm a belter. It reminded us of why we were out here, the out here being the important part. It may have been the alcohol, or the high of permanent assignment to a ship, but I noticed Julia Hicks. I knew her, and I knew her well. I knew her emotional tics, what she was capable of mentally and physically. I spent most of my days with her, but right then, I noticed her. She was tall and big-boned and had big teeth, and she was a woman. At first I hadn't been attracted to her, except for her eyes, of course, but the more time we spent together, the more I... I leaned over and kissed her right as she was opening her mouth to say something. The kiss was messy and misplaced, her mouth cold from the ice in her drink, tasting sharp as citrus and alcohol. I didn't care. I loved it. I wanted more. I held my mouth to hers until she pulled back and slapped me. Not a genteel slap. This was the real deal. My head rocked back, the sting spreading over the whole left side of my face. Wow, I thought, if that's the way she likes it, I can go there. I leaned in again, intent to continue. This time her fist met my cheek. She knocked me out. When I came to, I was lying in a bed in the infirmary. My jaw ached and my head hurt, but she was there watching me with a look of tenderness on her face. It didn't last long, I only caught a glimpse of it. It was the first and only time I saw her look at me like that. I tried to sit up, but her hand on my chest held me firm. I rubbed my aching jaw. It's not broken, she said, a smile briefly playing on her lips. You're going to be fine. I just nodded my head. Are you with me, Wells? I need to say something? I nodded my head again. 
Okay, listen up, because I am only going to say this once. She swallowed hard. What we have is too important to mess up with sex. Got that, Raj? You're my boy. With that, she got up and left. We never spoke of the incident again. When I came to, I noticed a few things. A high-pitched squealing in my ear. The second Levar floating placidly about twenty yards in front of me, and zero percent oxygen, flashing red and angry on my heads-up display. I gasped for breath instinctively, but my body found no sucker. I sucked in more and more, desperately trying to breathe, but finding nothing. My arms flailed, my feet kicked. I was dying. Later I reviewed the Levar logs and found out what had happened. The burn hadn't gone over 1G, but my body had been through so much already, what with the head trauma and the 3G burn, that I had quickly lost consciousness. The Levar had kicked in the last of the oxygen and set off that alarm to wake me up. That was smart, it saved my life. My reaction was not. Julia's words, You're my boy, were still echoing in my head. I must have been dreaming about her when I was out. That calmed my mind a bit. Julia had helped me form this plan. Julia wanted me to live. I had oxygen, if I could just find it. I turned off the O2 alarm and slowed my breathing, ignoring my racing heart. I yanked the oxygen tank from between me and Julia and unhooked it, pushing it away. I unstrapped the last tank from my lever and hooked it to the hose. I heard the hiss of the oxygen. I knew that I was going to live. At least for another tankful. Wells, this is Command. Are you out there? Over. Command, this is Wells. Still here. Still waiting. You got any news for me? As the seconds ticked by, I checked my heads up again. Once every ten seconds, at least. I was checking my damn oxygen levels. I was becoming obsessed. The tank I was on sat at 33%. And why not more resolution than that? I wanted tenths of a percent. Hell, I wanted hundredths of a percent. I wanted to see what each and every breath did to my oxygen levels, how long it sucked from my precious time left. Ah, uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings, but the Jantor has overshot your location and will be delayed further. Over. Shit! Shit, 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 motherfucker! Goddamn son of a bitch! Over! Maybe I could reprogram the heads-up display to give me more resolution. It wouldn't really be hard, but it would be risky. You know, if I happened to crash the Levar's OS while struggling for survival, that would be bad. We hear you, Wells. The Jantor knows the stakes and are doing everything they can. We are all rooting for you. Over. Understood. I am going to take measures to extend my oxygen supply. I expect I will be unconscious quite a bit, so don't freak if I don't answer right away. I'll get back to you as soon as I wake up. Over. It was my only hope. I programmed the Levar to lower the O2 until I passed out, and then give me just enough oxygen to keep me alive and unconscious. He would have to wake me up when it was time to change tanks. We hear you, Wells. Good luck. Over and out. About six hours after our last transmission, I woke up to the usual blaring alarm and flashing red oxygen level, but this time it was 1%. I thought about changing the tank right then, but I resisted. I needed to use every last molecule of O2 available to me. I also saw that I had a message waiting. Wells, this is command. The Jantor is about 25 hours out now. The engine has been fixed and they are burning their way back towards you at maximum G. 
Provided there are no more disasters, this number should be accurate. Update us on your status and if you have the O2 next time you're awake. This is command. Over and out. I did some quick calculations. I had four full tanks of oxygen left after this one. Running things the way I had been, unconscious from oxygen deprivation most of the time, I had 24 hours of O2 left. Shit. Command, this is Wells. I have 24 hours of oxygen left. There is some margin of error there, but it is going to be close. Tell those lazy sons of bitches on the janta to hurry up. Wells, over and out. I was starting to feel when a tank was running out. After the alarm woke me up, I would float there with my eyes closed, ignoring the heads up. After a time, the air seemed hotter and seemed to close in on me. When that happened, I would open my eyes, take deep breaths, and wait until the heads up showed the angry red zero percent. Panic set in, each and every time. I couldn't breathe. I was out of air, and if I could not complete this manoeuvre in a minute or so, I was dead. Dead. I got the tank switched and set the programme up and told the lever to execute. I was never conscious for long. You know, boy, Hicks said, you wouldn't be anywhere without me. That was funny, her calling me boy. She was the sum total of three months and five days older than me. I looked around and saw nothing. We were floating in a void, darkness all around us. She was naked. I looked down and saw that I was naked too. Uh, I began. Uh, it doesn't look like we are anywhere right now. She laughed, her deep braying laugh, and smiled. That is not what I am talking about. Okay, what the hell are you talking about? Without me, you would be dead. That freaked me out. Wasn't she the one who was dead? I don't like this. Yeah, I know, but I can help. Huh? Listen to me, boy, I can help. Remember that. You can help. That's it, Wells, she cooed like I was some newborn, or worse yet, some cadet straight from Earth. Fuck you, she laughed again. Too late, boyo. Just remember, I can help. I came to, the taste of metal in my mouth, still hearing Hicks's laughter ringing in my head. My O2 was at 3%. I wondered why 3% for a moment, and then I realised why. I was on my last tank. This was it. I consulted my heads up, which was now showing me the Jantor's progress. The Acarus was tracking it and relaying that info to me. It was 64 minutes out. I didn't have 64 minutes of O2 left, and even if I did, that didn't give them any time to come get me. Jantor, this is Wells. Come in. Over. The reply came back almost instantly, which shocked me for a moment. This is a Jantor. Glad to hear your voice, brother. We're almost there. Sorry, boys, I'm on my last tank. I have maybe ten minutes left, but I do appreciate the effort. Over. There was a delay this time. They were probably figuring out what to say. The Jantor is a two-crew cargo ship, just like the Acarus. I know those boys. We all went through the same training. It couldn't be easy for them to be so close, but no, they were going to be too late. Are you sure, Wells? Over. I looked at the second lever. It was empty. I had tossed every tank when it was done so I wouldn't get confused and put an empty on. There were no more tanks. Yes, I am sure. 
I heard Hicks's braying laugh again and heard her voice. I can help. Shit, wait a sec, gentle. There may be something. Over. Hicks's corpse was still lashed to me. I unwound it and pushed her body a few feet away. Do you have something or not, Wells? We can't take the suspense. Over. I laughed. I don't know why, but I did. Hey, Jones, hold on to your panties. Give me a sec. I think Hicks may save my ass one last time. Over. Hicks? What the hell are you talking about, Wells? Over. I didn't answer. I kept working, manoeuvring her body so I could get at her tank and unhooked it. I couldn't tell, though, if it had any air left in it, but there were no punctures or dents that I could see. There might be two hours or more left in her tank. I checked my heads up and saw my oxygen level count down to 1%. Gentle, I am going to hook myself up to Hicks's tank. There should be air in it, but I'm not sure. Her faceplate was breached, so some O2 must have been lost before the emergency shutoff kicked in. Just don't know how much. Over. Roger that, Wells. Do it, brother, and don't keep us waiting again, or I'm going to kick your ass just as soon as we rescue you. Over. You wish. Executing now. Over. Once again, I swung my right arm back around and snagged the extension tube my tank was on. I hyperventilated, held my breath, unhooked the old tank and hooked up the new tank. I kept my eye on the oxygen readout. It dropped from 1% to 0% as I unhooked the old tank and sat there at 0% when I hooked the new tank on. Shit, I thought. Shit, shit, shit. In the time it took me to think that, the readout popped from 0% to 41%. I let out a huge breath and whispered, Thanks, Hicks. I owe you one, sister. After my rescue, and after the Acarus was recovered, they decommissioned it. The drive module needed to be rebuilt, and the cargo and crew modules were checked out and used in other ships. I found it fitting. How could there be an Acarus without Julia Hicks? I got a promotion to Lieutenant Commander. Long overdue, they told me, but they had put it off to keep Team Hells in place. I can't say I blame them. Hicks and I were a hell of a team. They gave me the commission of a new cargo runner. It's called the Hicks. We had a funeral for Julia. Well, it was more of a wake. Her urn was there, and everyone got drunk and told stories about her. They made me talk. I guess it was her eulogy. I was quite drunk by then. Julia Hicks was the best damn bitch of a belter there ever was. I raised my glass and everyone cheered and toasted her. She was my friend, my best friend, and I was... I was her boy. More cheering. She lived like a belter and died like a belter. Together we lived a motherfucking dream. Team Hells! The chorus rose to a crescendo. A mixture of Team Hells and the motherfucking dream ringing out. I couldn't have been heard even if I had more to say. Not that I could talk. I was too busy doing the silent He-Man weeping thing and attempting to drown my sorrows in cheap Martian whiskey. I hope she gets a better funeral and eulogy, Earthside. But who the hell am I kidding? That was exactly the kind of send-off she would have wanted. I dreamed about Julia last night. She strode... That woman never just walked, into the mess, and slammed her tray down across from me. She took a bite of the slab of protein, as she called it, chewing noisily, her grey eyes burning into me. Did you hear? she asked around her food. The palace thing is happening. Really? 
It's going to take a lot of juice to get there. Won't be many visitors. You said it. It'll be the new frontier. And because of its inclined orbit, they're planning an observatory there. Much of the time, it'll have a clear view of the entire solar system. Now that sounds like an adventure. Besides, it's starting to get too safe around here. I laughed. It was far from safe, and she was proof. So, she continued, you going to volunteer? To go to Palace? Yeah, to take the hicks and go to Palace. They're going to need a cargo runner, and they're going to want volunteers. I thought about it, and it sounded good. Why the hell not go as far out into the frontier as I could? I was probably going to die out here some day anyway. Might as do it on my own terms. That's my boy, Hicks said, reading my face. You tell the cap I told you to do it, that he has to send you. It'll scare the shit out of him. Will do. Hicks thrust to her feet and said loudly, You hear that, you pussies? We are going to Palace. Team Hells rides again, living the motherfucking dream. Cap turned white when I told him about the dream. We are going, and an observatory is going to be built. The news is not official yet. We are still 18 months away from Palace being close enough. He said I can have the assignment as long as I keep my mouth shut, until the word is official, and don't tell anyone that I found out talking to a dead woman. I still have the dream where I can't breathe. I'm going to die. But not every night anymore, so maybe writing this has helped. Who knows? And you know what? I really don't care about the damn dream anymore. So I feel like I'm dying. So what? We all die. I am just getting some early practice in. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, like I say, copyright is Robert. Robert, honestly, thank you so much for kind of letting me do these two stories of yours. It's just been, you know, truly amazing. Thank you. And Catherine, thank you. It's been nice to have your voice, hear your voice on the airwaves again. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sova, 394, you know, put to bed. Listen, it's July. It's the month of my birthday. I just don't let... Tears to Terrify, Crash and Burn. Do you know what I mean? Honestly, help support it. Monthly donations. Come over to any of the websites. The, the kind of, there's a little kind of sign-up box there. Monthly donations. One cappuccino, one pint of Foster's Lager. Not that I drink Foster's Lager. <laughs> oh you know what I mean? I'm an Italian brew myself. You know what I mean? But help her out. Do you know what I mean? It would be just, it's the most worst thing in the world. You know what I mean? Kind of. Kill Off Your Babies and Tears to Terrify was like the original one that kind of spurned and I kind of roped Larry into it, you know what I mean? He didn't want to do it at first, but I kind of begged, borrowed and steal and kind of pestered him. I don't want that to kind of go, I don't want that kind of flick that switch, you know what I mean? But kind of reality's knocking at my door and I can't afford it, to be quite honest, there's no way. So, help out. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a procedure initiated.
shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.